Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? What a week, Natalie. <laughs> so, as you and probably everyone else listening knows, uh, Politico on Monday night published a draft opinion from Justice Samuel Alito in the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, in which he, again, in a draft opinion, overrules uh, the constitutional right to abortion established nearly 50 years ago in the case Roe versus Wade. This Politico story was in no uncertain terms, at least in the legal world, and I can probably say in the broader news world, the scoop of the century. This is an unprecedented situation, and we are going to be breaking the decision, which if it holds, again, it's not a final decision, would have major, major effects on abortion access in the United States, and we're going to be talking about all of that with a special guest. But Natalie, what was your reaction seeing this news on Monday night? I mean, shock for the most part, you know, both for the actual opinion itself, which is groundbreaking and would have such mammoth um, repercussions on the ground. Um, and as you said, we're going to be discussing and breaking that down with a special guest in a few moments, um, but also for the unprecedented nature of the leak. Like this does not happen at the Supreme Court. We've never had, we've never seen a full unpublished opinion leaked before, you know, it came out officially. Um, there's been other leaks, but never, you know, something like this, which obviously, you know, um, also will is going to have repercussions for the court as an institution. And, you know, I will say uh, next morning, the court did confirm the the authenticity of this, this draft opinion. Um, and Chief Justice Roberts has called for an investigation into it, um, has asked the marshals to, to look into it and, and to, to determine the source of the leak. Yeah, Natalie, the story about the leak itself and the institutional fallout that it will inevitably occur as a result is a really, really interesting one, especially for a legal news reporter like, you know, legal news reporters like you and I who follow the court and have been paying attention to it for, for several years now and, and know just how extremely rare this type of situation is where a draft opinion has leaked in full months ahead of when it was ordinarily expected to come out. But at the same time, I think it's important not to lose sight of the real story here, which is obviously the impact that the decision would have if it in fact holds. The court in its statement was clear to point out that this is not a final draft. In fact, um, it's dated back to February and these um, opinions tend to go through several versions before they ultimately come out. But you know, it, it would, if it does hold, and that typically is what happens in Supreme Court cases, it would have, you know, these massive consequences across the country. And so let's get into those. Uh, and to discuss, you know, this blockbuster news over the leaked draft opinion, we now welcome to the show special guest Stanford Law Professor Bernadette Myler. She is a scholar of British and American constitutional law and of law in the humanities. Welcome to the show, Bernadette. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. Of course. Um, so what was your reaction seeing the news break in Politico on Monday night publishing uh, Justice Alito's full draft opinion uh, overturning Roe versus Wade? I was pretty shocked. This is an unprecedented leak, and I wouldn't have expected that um, something like this would have happened. I wasn't that surprised about the content of the opinion, 
because I think a lot of people assumed that the two possibilities in Dobbs were either that Roe and Casey would be overruled or that uh, they would be severely limited even more than they have been, which is already a lot. So I wasn't that surprised substantively by the outcome, but I was kind of shocked that this leak had occurred. Well, let's just let's just talk about the result for a minute. So the the leak draft opinion obviously in no uncertain terms overrules Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which reaffirmed the constitutional right to abortion in uh, established in Roe versus Wade. If this ruling holds, it's obviously not final yet, and the Supreme Court has said as much. What will that mean for women's access to abortion in the United States? The opinion very clearly sends the question of abortion back to state legislatures. So what this will mean for women in the United States is that a lot will depend on where you live. Uh, Abortion providers will presumably be shut down in states that want to ban abortion. And we can tell pretty clearly which ones those are because of the already existing legislation limiting abortion. And then in other states, uh, other states may move to become so-called, you know, kind of sanctuary states for abortion, where they would offer women from out of state the possibility of traveling to their state to procure an abortion. It will also put a lot of pressure on the question of abortions by medication. Already, the FDA has loosened the procedures for prescribing Uh, medication abortions and allowed for that to not be done in person. So the possibility of kind of remote provision of medication abortions is still present. I think a lot of legislation in the states is probably going to focus on that and try to tamp that down as well. Now, this ruling is obviously a draft ruling and not the final version. Um, How likely do you think it is that, you know, typically these drafts go through several versions, how likely do you think it is that we might see some significant movement in kind of edits to this draft? Are there some possible outcomes you'll be looking for in terms of things that might get negotiated between what that draft opinion is and, and what it might be? Yes. So I think one of the very interesting parts about this opinion is that it is a very early draft. It was a draft that was produced in February apparently, and was leaked in May. So that's a big time frame to have elapsed. Um, And we don't know really what has happened even up to now, never mind what will happen before a final opinion is issued. I think that it's pretty likely that the lineup of justices will remain the same, that uh, Kavanaugh is probably the one least likely to, uh, you know, kind of sign on to this majority. But I think probably... Uh, the 5-4 will hold, that uh, a five-justice majority will hold. But I think that the scope of the opinion could be considerably narrowed by the time we see a final decision. And that there's a particular way in which I think it will probably be narrowed, which is that um, this opinion really calls into question the entirety of the right to privacy cases. Even though Justice Alito says nominally that uh, this decision is just about abortion, it isn't threatening other rights like same-sex marriage or contraception, the whole logic of the opinion undermines those rights as well. So I think that if uh, the justices don't want to, you know, some of the justices don't want to incite, you know, even more resistance to the court and even more uh, 
upsetment uh, about the outcome, they would probably be working very hard to kind of narrow the logic of the opinion. So just to kind of put a button on that point, I mean, this has been wall to wall news since Monday night. There have been, uh, you know, there's a there's been a ton of outrage on the left. There have been protests outside the Supreme Court. So I guess what I'm kind of getting at is you don't think that maybe some of these external factors, this outrage that we've seen, this backlash since you know earlier in the week, will lead to much, if anything, changing in the bottom line of Roe being overturned. And so I guess that's all to say that you know if that was in fact the motive behind the leak, you don't think it will be successful. I don't think it will be successful. I can't imagine that any of the justices who signed on to overturning Roe and Casey didn't think that it would be incredibly politically controversial. So, I mean, they knew this from the questioning that they received when they were going through the confirmation process when senators were speaking with them, right? So uh, I think that this is probably predetermined for them that that it would be very controversial, but they've decided to go ahead with it. I think that um, there is an interesting passage in Alito's opinion where he talks about um, trying to avoid a sense that the court is illegitimate or that the uh, court is somehow politically influenced and talks about whether overturning Roe or maintaining it is a better way to go in order to maintain political legitimacy. And what he says is, um, whatever uh, whatever influence the court may have on public attitudes must stem from the strength of our opinion. So I would say that if that's the case, in fact, Um, This opinion, as it stands, is not going to do much to bolster public uh, belief in the legitimacy of the court. It's a poorly written opinion. And, you know, if uh, something like this came out, um, it in and of itself would, uh, I think, undermine the legitimacy of the court, even without the uh, added fact of overturning Roe and Casey. Let's dive into the language that Alito uses in this draft. Um, you know, you, you've kind of briefly touched on it, but what is his main argument for why Roe and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which reaffirm Roe, should be overturned? Yes. Yeah, so he starts out by saying that there's no right to abortion written in the Constitution and no right to privacy more generally in the text of the Constitution. He then acknowledges that there might be some liberty interests that are implicit in the Constitution that aren't called out by name. But he says that we have to look to the established history and traditions of our country and our country's uh, values in order to determine whether those particular rights are protected. And when he looks to history and tradition, he looks at it in an incredibly narrow way um, by saying, was the specific right to abortion legally protected historically? Um, rather than saying, is there some kind of right of you know bodily autonomy or right to bodily privacy or right to bodily decision-making or right to marital decision-making that has historically protected that would encompass this right to abortion? He instead says, we have to look exactly at regulations of abortion and make a determination based on that. And then, you know, even further, he says, well, uh, the common law history of it, uh, which would have prohibited abortion at the time of what's called quickening, which would be about the fourth month, uh, isn't as relevant as the history of what states were doing around the time of the 14th Amendment, uh, which was 
where states were banning more abortions than had been the case under the common law. Of course, you know, thinking about the context of the 14th Amendment, this is before the 19th Amendment, before uh, women's suffrage, before any rights that we currently have uh, that have accrued to women were constitutionalized or even uh, socially uh, accepted. And very shortly after um, a lot of uh, states had you know, still had coverture where married women couldn't uh, represent their e- interests legally. So, um, it, you know, if we think about the what's happening contemporaneous to the 14th Amendment with respect to women, um, it's certainly not a pretty picture. Yeah, it's a really interesting debate about the history, as you say. You know, the 14th Amendment, I think it was ratified in the late 1860s as part of the Reconstruction Amendments. And I, 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 Alito leans on the fact that there were all of these criminal abortion statutes at the time, and so therefore the abortion right, in his view, couldn't be, and he uses the phrase, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and, quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And I guess that comes from previous Supreme Court case law about substantive due process. But I want to get to this idea of the debate over history. It seems like almost there's a dialogue at least, between Alito's opinion and the actual opinion in Roe itself, which, as you say, recognized that, you know, the common law, um, I'll use a quote here, found, uh, the the opinion found that it is, quote, undisputed that at common law, abortion performed before quickening is not an indictable offense, and that the statutes that Alito relies on are, quote, of a relatively recent vintage. So how does Alito respond to those historical arguments in row from Justice Blackman that, you know, trace the issue all the way back to classical times in ancient Greece, for instance? Well, he has a very telling response in part, which is to say, well, he's not relying on the common law authors like Hale and Blackstone. Um, He's relying on what Alito thinks is suspect scholarship about whether Um, abortion restrictions were in fact enforced at all under the common law. And I think that that is revealing because it shows a difference between uh, kind of law in the books and law in action, right? So are we going to think about constitutional meaning as determined by uh, the rights that people actually enjoyed, um, you know, at the time of the founding or or whenever um, in our tradition, or the rights that were nominally applied to them, right? Or that they nominally enjoyed. And I think that uh, legal historians have done a great job of showing how, you know, a lot of criminal statutes seem to have extremely harsh penalties, especially in the 18th century. But in fact, uh, a lot of the mechanisms of the criminal justice system were designed to undermine the harshness of those penalties. And so um, the pardon system or transportation or all of these other ways around um, a lot of the very harsh penalties that were on the books Uh, meant that the system taken as a whole actually wasn't penalizing things in the way that it would look if you just looked at the text of the books. And so I think that um, he's basically taking an extremely formalist view of what counts as the relevant history and saying that all of these social practices and the practices around abortion and permissibility uh, or lack thereof uh, aren't relevant to this kind of decision about whether something's implicit in uh, our constitutional history. Yeah, I want to just follow up on that and take like a, a, a brief detour here. And that is that you've seen kind of a lot of fear 
that the the broad language that Justice Alito uses in this draft opinion could, for instance, be used to undermine or revisit other newer constitutional constitutionally recognized rights like same-sex marriage just a few years ago. What's your reaction to that? I think that it could definitely be used, his logic could definitely be used to undermine same-sex marriage, especially insofar as it's tied to the due process clause. Now, I think that I, if you look at state statutes, right, if you were to look at state statutes around the time of the 14th Amendment, you're certainly not going to see any protection for a right of same-sex marriage. You're probably going to see a lot of prohibitions on sexual practices uh, that, you know, akin to Lor- the, the kinds uh, protected in the Lawrence case uh, in the early 2000s. Um, so I think that you're going to see a lot of um, prohibitions that would suggest that uh, rights of sexuality and rights to same-sex marriage aren't going to be something that's protected under the Due Process Clause if you think of it very narrowly in the way that Alito has done in this draft. Now, I think that same-sex marriage is actually a somewhat different case, though, than abortion or even contraception because of the equality arguments that can also be made. And, you know, if you look at the history of the litigation of same-sex marriage or even other um, sexuality rights like in Lawrence, what's interesting is that you see a dual path being pursued by the litigation, which is that there's an equal protection oriented path and a due process oriented path. And it's really because Justice Kennedy latched on an idea of dignity and liberty as involving the ability to define your intimate relationships and to carve out your life path that we have these opinions that move in a uh, due process liberty oriented direction rather than relying on inequality rationale. Because a lot of scholars and even litigators had thought that equal protection was a more effective route, perhaps, to uh, gain same-sex marriage rights. Now, I think the fact of Justice Kennedy authoring those opinions is also quite interesting because Kavanaugh, who is supposedly one of the majority in this case, uh, was a mentee of uh, Justice Kennedy. A lot of people feel that he got his seat because of Justice Kennedy. And I wonder how much he would like to, uh, you know, kind of tarnish Kennedy's reputation by uh, sweeping up same-sex marriage and those other kinds of cases into this opinion. So I would be curious uh, to see in particular how he might work to kind of work harder to carve out same-sex marriage as something different than uh, the kinds of privacy cases that are implicated by the Dobbs opinion. Related to this thread of conversation, um, you know, I think is the doctrine of stare decisis, respect for precedent, um, obviously a common source of debate at the Supreme Court. In general, the court has outlined factors that the justices should use for overruling precedent. How does Justice Alito's draft argue that Roe and Casey satisfy these factors and thus warrant overruling? Yes. So he looks at a number of different factors um, that the court has traditionally used in overruling. I would say that what I was surprised by, in his opinion, is that he relies so much on one factor, which is wrong in the first place. Um, So he calls Roe, as many people have pointed out, egregiously wrong several times. And uh, he also just takes aim very directly at the reasoning in Roe and in Casey. 
So that factor is usually not emphasized as much as some of the other factors, um, including workability. Uh, and he emphasizes both the, I think, the um, wrong in the first place factor and then also the quality of the reasoning factor, which also is usually not emphasized as much. Um, and he really uh, takes aim at Roe on both of those grounds. He also talks about workability with respect to Casey and the undue burden standard, but that's less emphasized than some of the other uh, these other factors. And then also in terms of reliance, he rejects what um, has often been thought of as an important reliance interest, which is societal reliance rather than the reliance of particular individuals, say, on something not being criminal um, and performing their conduct in, in accordance with that. So he rejects the idea that there could be any kind of societal reliance on the availability of abortion or that that has, uh, you know, kind of helped to shape society in certain ways. So let's kind of um, circle back to what we talked about um, at the beginning of this discussion, and that is the impact that this decision, which is a tentative one, it's a it's a draft and it's not the final one, but if it holds um, and Roe and Casey are overturned, what what will the battleground look like for abortion rights? Because it just seems like there's so much uncertainty with the fact that Roe and Casey have been the law of the land now for 50 years. Absolutely. I think that there is a lot of uncertainty. I, I would say that there are a couple of different um, battlegrounds that will be taking place perhaps simultaneously. So one will have to do with uh, whether or not women can travel out of state to obtain abortions. Now, this is you know protected under the right to travel. Um, and I don't think that the Supreme Court will kind of overturn those decisions because they have a lot of other implications. Um, but certainly states are going to try to find ways to deter women from traveling out of state to uh, exercise abortion rights. Secondly, I think the medication abortion question will become uh, something at the forefront. So whether or not um, Congress decides to try to legislate to uh, protect the availability of medication abortions interstate or the reverse to ban them, um, I think that states will certainly be uh, trying to figure out ways uh, to work around this decision or to close down abortion uh, rights uh, by further by uh, restrictions on medication abortion. I think the more complicated question is whether or not this opinion um, and some of the language in it suggests a move towards thinking about fetal personhood, um, whether this would lead to the possibility for federal legislation protecting fetal personhood as part of the 14th Amendment, right? So is this case kind of laying the groundwork for federal legislation banning abortion when say, Republicans take over um, Congress and the presidency. So I think that that will be something to kind of watch in the longer term. Um, but right now, I think the main questions will have to do with uh, medication abortion and then also traveling to obtain abortions. Bernadette, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us to digest and dig through this draft opinion. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the discussion. Well, that was a fascinating discussion with Bernadette, Natalie. I think that's about all the time we have on this episode. I guess as we kind of sign off here, I'll, I'll say, and I've said it several times on the episode so far, that this is a draft 
opinion. It is not a final decision of the Supreme Court. And when the Supreme Court finally issues and publishes its decision in the case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, we will obviously have much more to discuss. And I look forward to discussing with it with you then. Agreed. Thanks so much, Jimmy. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our special guest this week, Bernadette Myler. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.